athletes inevitably forget most of what they're taught, especially when it's not repeated intentionally. And the first thing that coaches do is blame them for it. Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Doug Lamov to the Coaches Club Podcast. Doug is a former teacher and school principal. He currently trains and studies high-performing teachers at Uncommon Schools and is the author of several books, including Teach Like a Champion, Practice Perfect, and his latest, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. I'm so excited to be able to share my conversation with Doug as the first episode of the Coach's Club podcast. We dive into why he wrote The Coach's Guide to Teaching, how to fight forgetting, creating a culture of error, the importance of language to culture, and more. Before we jump into the conversation, I want to let you know about two things. First, if you want to get your hands on a copy of The Coach's Guide to Teaching, go grab a copy from Doug's publisher, John Cat Educational, and use our exclusive discount code TRANSFORM20 at checkout for 20% off your copy. Click the link in the show notes and use our promo code TRANSFORM20 to get 20% off your copy today. Second, I enjoyed the book so much that I took 77 pages of notes on the book. If you'd like to get a free PDF of my notes from the Coach's Guide to Teaching, go to transformsport.org slash CGT to get your free copy, or just click the link in the show notes. Coaches, I'm confident that this conversation with Doug Lamov will help you get better at teaching and leading. Enjoy the episode. Let's hop in, and you kind of just started to talk about it a little bit with um, youth sports and how many people get into it with the best of intentions, but... I think are just kind of ill-equipped to provide a great experience for kids. Uh, And so first question, I just wanted to to hear from you. Why did you write your latest book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Well, I have have a love for, love for teaching. You know, it's my, it's my fascination in life. It's my um, primary professional interest, but I also love sports, play them growing up. I have three, three kids who are athletes. um, And, and so I'm interested in it both as a professional, uh, you know, I love teaching and over the course of talking about teaching, I've ended up talking to a lot of coaches about teaching and talking with, you know, sports federations and, and professional franchises. But I also have thought about it a lot and reflected on, on a lot on the sidelines as a parent watching my own children have a variety of youth sports experiences, you know, some of them incredible and some of them um, incredibly not incredible. <laughs> I love that and that intersection of, of your passion and also just, you know, now seeing it through the eyes of your kids too. I think that's so powerful. Um, I look like, was there a, a moment or a certain experience that you had where you knew, okay, I've got to write this book. That's interesting. I mean, there were so many, uh, and as you know, as with, um, there, there, there are a lot of, I think maybe one of them, I mean, there, there are, I think there were a series of them, you know, like there were, there were many when I was, when my kids were young and that maybe started my interest in 
coaching, which is really first reflected in Practice Perfect, which is a previous book that I wrote where I was, I was trying to sort of engage the idea. But, but there was a moment where, um, you know, I started doing workshops for uh, U.S. Soccer Federation. Soccer is my chosen sport. And they would ask me to come and talk to coaches. And I just remember being uh, struck by, you know, the questions were really challenging and um, the questions that coaches were asking were really challenging and people just didn't have the science to engage them. And I just remember hearing just a very well-intentioned group of coaches perpetuate a lot of things that, you know, I knew from reading cognitive science were not accurate about how people learn, but that they had sort of learned <laughs> from the education sector. I mean, I think the education sector People outside the education sector, the teaching sector, presume that we are a source of expertise and knowledge, but there's a lot of misinformation and lack of expertise and knowledge in the teaching sector that gets equally perpetuated. And so, you know, I just, um, I remember very profoundly being in a meeting hearing coaches trying to talk about problem solving and decision making and, um, and really, you know, like dismissing the importance of background knowledge and uh, saying things that I just thought were really just unscientific. And so, you know, maybe the moment was my first, my first thought wasn't, I'm going to write a book about this. My first thought was I'm going to read as much cognitive science as I can to try and start answering these questions. And I think a lot of my, my process for understanding things is writing about them. And so maybe as with most of my books, the book started writing itself before I even realized I was writing a book. Maybe there was a, I actually can go back to, um, this memo that I ended up writing to someone in, you know, in the U.S. Soccer Federation where he just asked me a really profound question about um, problem solving. We watched a training session together and I just remember thinking, you know, the things that the coaches were trying to do in that session to build problem solving were not very effective. And so I was trying to describe why. And one of them was that they weren't looking at it. They weren't looking at a problem. They were trying to remember a problem that everyone remembered differently from five minutes ago because coaches had been socialized to like not, interrupt the flow of play to talk about a problem when it occurred. And so maybe that was where it started. Mm, that's so interesting. Um, yeah. And that kind of, kind of leads into my next question and you kind of started to mention it. One of the things that has kind of spurred my thinking around a lot of this and the questions I've been asking people and the answers I want to find is, and again, in the education sector, there is a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of non best practices happening. Um, but at the same time, like, why do you think there has been such a lack of transfer with some of the things we know are best practices in the yeah. classroom to the athletic arenas? It's a great question. I'm not sure that I can answer it other than to say, you know, I think that every, every professional, every profession perceives of itself as an exception. I think the teaching does this too. You know, teaching will, teachers will say all the time, how can you possibly apply on teaching if you've never been a teacher? And so I think sometimes there's a culture of exceptionalism, which is people think you can't understand my work. I'm like, you know, you, nothing from outside my work can, uh, can really be under, uh, can be applied directly to my work and people who don't do this work can't really understand it. And so we tend to build silos around things. And I think that's a constant challenge in, you know, as, as I think I said, I think it, it happens coming out of education as much as into education. So maybe that, maybe that's one reason. I also think it's a fairly um, decentralized field, right? Like it's a, like uh, if you wanted to 
science professional or you know uh make the legal profession or the medical profession more responsive to the data on what good <laughs> what good lawyering or what good doctoring meant you know there are really significant professional associations that you would go through that provide and shape professional development throughout the sector they're more centralized than coaching and teaching which are very decentralized fields and so it's just hard to make systematic change that might be a second reason yeah um that that's really interesting one more thing to follow up on that do you think that and i know that you even in your book you write a lot about um coaches internationally um, and there are lots of countries internationally that have licensure requirements for coaches whereas in america there's little to none in most cases do you think that that is a possible solution to some of it well, it's funny, you know, because my experience is actually the opposite. Because I came into it through soccer, and and soccer has higher, you know, soccer has this series of licenses A through F, and then professional license. You could argue that the game of soccer has more rigor- rigorous coaching. Soccer has more rigorous licensing standards than teaching does in this country, you know, or even in school. I mean, you, know, you have to get like six licenses to be, uh, you know, to be a very high level soccer coach, and you don't have to do that to be a teacher, as you know, well known. So, and yet, you know, I'm not sure that that. I think the I think license you know the U.S. Soccer Federation and other licensing bodies do a good do a pretty good job, but it's still it's still easy for you know for misinformation to get in there. So um, so I'm not sure, but I think that that's int- but it's also interesting because soccer is a little bit of an outlier in this country in this country. You know, I don't, to the, that I'm not aware of you know basketball and hockey having the same licensing requirements. So my experience may be anomalous there, but I think it's interesting. I, I always. I always talk about the opposite to what you're talking about, which is how much licensing there is in the game of soccer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. And yeah, from what I've seen and, and dug into soccer has the most um, compared to, compared to the other sports. But I just think it's so interesting that, yeah. you know, as a, as a country, we'd say, you know, if you're going to teach our kids, you've got to be licensed, but if yeah. you're going to go coach kids on Saturday, which is just another learning environment, um, you just have to have a pulse and maybe you played at some point yeah. in a lot of cases. And so I just, well, it's also, it's also really, at least in the game of soccer, it's really interesting that only in the last five or 10 years has youth coach become a viable profession. If you wanted to be a professional soccer coach prior to the last five or 10 years, you had to either be at the college level or you had at the high school level and therefore like teach on the side, usually kind of like, you know, like you, where you're like both a teacher and a coach. Um, or you did it part-time and only recently has the field professionalized enough, at least that like there are now people who are professional youth soccer coaches. And I just remember one of the coaches I profile in the book and, um, you know, to go back to the interest of parenting, like I, I met him cause he was my, the first great coach that my kids ever had and watching my kids just blossom under him was incredible. Um, but he was a, he was an assistant coach at a division one program here in Albany at Siena college. And he realized that he loved coaching young people and wasn't really interested in the things you have to do to be a professional soccer coach and where that went. You know, it was like to be a professional college coach, you did spend a lot of time recruiting guys and scouting the opposition. And he was really interested in being a teacher. And thankfully, like being a teacher of younger, he loved coaching 14 year old kids and teaching them like, that's exactly what you would want from coach. And was just passionate, even from a very young age, about like about all the questions about how you do it well, and like 
I don't think he knew what I did when we started having conversations that we just, we just started having conversations about teaching and he was so responsive to it and just asked for more and more help. He was, he was like, he was the perfect coach. Um, but at first it was really hard for him to imagine uh, what his life would be like if he left this job at the division one program and decided to become a youth coach. And it was really like, at first he was sort of cobbling together, you know, like, how do you get, he was young and married at the time. How do you get health insurance? <laughs> when you're doing a series of like i coach this team and this team and how do you get married when you're like you know you're working nights and weekends and you know uh so i just think like the the challenge the challenges of professional of make of conceiving of youth coaching as professional work are real and but i think the, the avenues to doing that as a as a career have really dramatically changed in the last five or 10 years. And suddenly, at least in the game of soccer, you know, he's now a coach at Atlanta United's Academy, right? And so that's his full-time job is youth soccer coach and he has health insurance and he has a career trajectory and um, I'm now way down on this digression. That's probably not what you want me to talk No, that's about. fantastic. <laughs> it, it's so interesting. Yeah. And it, it so connects to, um, so much of what I found and people have talked about in these conversations of um, we need to be intentional about putting great coaches with our younger players um, in order to keep them playing. Because I'm guessing that your kid, your kid or kids who played for this coach fell in love with the game because of him. And they continue to play because they had this incredible experience, which was the result of a coach that wanted to grow and a, a coach that had experience and, and training and, and wanted more of it. But he really did it despite the incentives in the field, right? All the incentives in the field are the statuses, the older the player, the higher the status for the most part. Whereas the value that you create as a coach is probably higher, you know, especially if you map the, you know, his influence over my kids' lives by virtue of having him as 12 and 14 year olds. It's so profound. But all the incentives were like, if you want to be ambitious, if you want to have status in the field, if you want to have health insurance in the field, you got to coach at the college level or the high school level. And so all the incentives were against this sort of investment in young people and teaching them right from the outset and taking on the hardest challenge, <laughs> the harder challenge of, you know, like attention issues and, and things uh, uh, among, among 12 and 14 year olds. So, you know, making it even more miraculous that my kids had the blessing of coming across as coach. Yeah, I love that. Um, kind of shifting a little bit. Sure. Um, I was really curious, was there anything that you discovered as you wrote your book that either really surprised you or maybe mm-hmm. was a different answer than you anticipated to a question? Almost everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I really didn't know what the answers were going to be when I started writing um i think it and weaving it was so hard to weave all the pieces together but i think a lot of the stuff about like decision making was was really really challenging and the moment when i the moments when i started to realize um I think, I think one of the big realizations was this quote that I come back to several times in, in the book, which is Christian labor saying to me, the answer is it depends. But like there is no, there, like, think about all the things you have to teach as a coach and how different they are. There can't, 
I mean, I'm always skeptical of the like one right answer anyway, but like there can't be one silver bullet for all those things. But the question is match, match the technique to the thing you're trying to do at the time. And so oftentimes people would set these, uh, set these sort of false dichotomies of like, is it, you know, is it like, just like they do in education, like, is it rote skill? Should you be automi automating, you know, um, skill, like receiving a ball, or should you be focused on decision-making? It's all about decision-making. We shouldn't do any like automating, you know, it should all be like, and there's a culture of like, there should not be any structure. It should be like the game is the best teacher. Kids should, kids should just be, it should just be unstructured play. Um, and so I guess, I think maybe one of the most interesting parts was, was realizing that there was a place for most of those things. It was a question of like how you fit the pieces together based on what you're trying to accomplish. And that, but that for the most part, the idea of like decision-making and skill needed each other, that in fact, the people who believed passionately in like skill, you know, decision-making is everything. Often the thing that they were overlooking was the thing that they scorned, which is players couldn't make decisions because they're, their skills weren't automatic in the moment when they're trying to make the decision. And yes, teaching them visual cues for what to look for is really, really important, but you can't see that cue unless the skill is automatic. And so you're right. And the person who's, <laughs> the person whose idea you dismissed is also right. And, uh, and both things are true. And I think there just, there were so many times in the book where I found myself just saying like, wanted to write that sentence, both things are actually true at the same time, which, uh, which is really surprising. Yeah. I think one of the other, maybe one other thing that I'd just like to say was like, just became over the course of writing the book profoundly important to me. But my initial outline, it wasn't even in there, was just the importance of long-term memory and realizing that like, we're so familiar with the process of forgetting that we overlook it as, as a as piece of, of learning. Um, and even thinking about how profoundly it affects the psychosocial relationships between coaches and athletes, that athletes, inevitably forget most of what they're taught, especially when it's not repeated intentionally. And the first thing that coaches do is blame them for it. That is that. Okay. So that leads in perfectly to my next question. Um, because I totally agree that, I mean, forgetting is so powerful. And like you said, I think often the tendency for coaches is to blame the athletes for a lack of effort, a lack of focus, whatever it may be. And so you, my daughter had a coach who pulled them off at this. She was on the B team at this club and she pulled her off at the side and she said, this is why you're the B team. <laughs> wow. I that's that sucks that sucks to hear that as a kid and an athlete it makes it makes you not want to keep playing like, well that's certain and you talk about like motivate like moments that motivated me to write the book that was you know wow. was one of them as well um man I, I feel for your daughter that's brutal um so let's use um an example of it's halftime of a game yeah you kind of talked about this on the sports psych show um and the team didn't execute whatever it was the coach had been working on with them in training um, and coaches frustrated, um, players are probably frustrated. Yeah. Like what is the effective way to handle that situation? Is it to scrap what you worked on and go to something they know, or is mm -hmm. it to remind them of what you did? How, how can you fight for getting in the middle of the game? Yeah. In other words, in other words, what can you do if you, if you know that you, what can you do at halftime? Yeah. I think the first thing that I would do is like, 
first thing I'm just thinking about one of the coaches in the book, Chris Apple told me about like, I want to plan my affect here. Am I mad at the guys or am I, am I calm? I think I want to be calm here and emotionally constant, right? They know it's not working. Shouting at them only makes it worse and makes them feel blamed and focuses them on like, who's to blame here? And how much am I to blame? Am I getting my, more than my share of the blame? Why is he shouting at me, right? So I want to be emotionally constant. And then I, what I know about retrieval practices or what I know about remembering is that retrieval practice really helps. And so one of the most constant low stakes quizzing so if we're failing to like find our positions in, I don't know, a triangle in two, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a series of um, drawings of like where the opposition might be and ask guys, like quiz guys, where should you be here? Kevin, where should you be here? Thomas, where should you be here? You know, Deshaun, where should you be here? Um, to cause it, to, to cause them to remember it and to put it into their, working memory and build a long-term memory of it and just ensure that they know. Um, and so I'm going to try, I'm going to try and fill, focus on building memory. So then in the second half, they're likely to remember it more. Like I'm going to basically do it, insert a small round of practice, retrieval practice in at halftime. And I'm going to do that emotionally constantly. I'll just tell you this, the story that, um, Gregor Townsend is the head coach of Scotland's national rugby team, and he's just an incredibly thoughtful guy. And he told me the story of they were they were playing England, and you know, it's a big rivalry for Scotland, but England's a much bigger country, and they were getting routed. It was so bad at the end at, at the halftime talk that he was like, you know, they were down like forty to nine or something. He was like, this game is gone. So he just said that instead of shouting at the guys like I ordinarily would have, I just was like let's just use this as a teaching opportunity. Let's just go through exactly what is supposed to happen in the situations where we're failing and let's review our jobs and make sure we know it. And he was really thinking about like teaching for the next time, like this game is gone. I'm teaching you now. So we'll understand in the next game what our roles are. And so he was, he was kind of doing what I'm describing here, which he was emotionally constant. He focused on retrieval practice and having guys remember and install in long-term memory what they were supposed to be doing in specific situations um, and they came out in the second half and like, you know, they ended up losing, but they, but they ended up losing by like two points at the last second. It was like, the, you know, almost the greatest comeback in Scottish rugby history. And, and he wrote me cause he was like, I just find myself wondering whether, you know, I accidentally stumbled onto something at the halftime that was like, was more effective than what I intended to do. The fact that I'd given up and was like, okay, I'm just going to think about, you know, next time was actually what helped with this time just basically he made a decision to teach instead of to try and like, you know, make it a motivational thing or, um, or to cue in on emotions and, and presume that the problem was a question of like desire, intention, motivation, focus, that he actually decided to, to approach it as a teaching problem. And that actually, <laughs> who knows, you know, the, the plural of, of anecdote is not data, but, um, but I think it's a really, I think it's a really interesting story. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, and I just remember being an athlete in that position mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the things that coaches need to consider more. Like you're talking about the psychosocial is always happening. Like, okay, what is, what are my reactions, my tone, my emotions going to do to my players, how they're feeling? Um, yeah. and, and to be controlled like that, I think is so powerful kind of shifting into feedback a little bit. Um, 
I, I really like the example that you talked about on the sports psych show with um, a coach who paused practice, gave a piece of feedback about a certain kind of run that he wanted to see his yeah. players doing and then sent them out to do it. They did it. It was beautiful. But then he, then he pauses them again and tells them he wants something else done and they forget yeah. everything with the first. Um, and so I, I think I kind of have two questions here. The first is how can a coach effectively give that feedback of I'm looking for this thing while still ensuring that athletes are doing um, previously taught and previously learned skills? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, which is in other words, how do you focus their working memory on incorporating something new while making sure that they are continuing to execute the other things that they've learned. So I, th I mean, I think that one of the things about one of the important things about coaching is that for the most part, for things to show up in the game, they have to be in long-term memory. Anyway, there's very little, you know, you can, I think one of the things I argue in the book is you can basically keep one thing actively in working memory at a time and everything else is going to show up while you're playing is there because it's in long-term memory. And so I think the way to make the other things you've taught show up is to make sure that they are, that you've installed them into long-term memory mm -hmm. so that they can happen with a very small load on working memory. If they don't, then the process of teaching something new will crowd them out. Anything that players have to think consciously about doing will be crowded out by new information. If they don't have to think consciously, if it's become automatic or it's in the process of becoming automatic, then new content will not crowd it out. But I think it's, there are things that we've taught that are in the process, you know, we're in, the, in that process somewhere between like entirely in working memory and entirely in long-term memory. And so I think a, like a really useful thing that you can do is just like I could, in the case of this, this story about the, the runs that the girls were making, here's like two runs, one for the, one for the defender, one for the ball, beautiful. Like another round, like after that first round of that should be great. I'm really starting to see great runs. I want you to keep doing them. And I want you to think about the quality of your first time touch, right? So I could bring in, I could, I could, when I feel like they're getting good enough at it, that I could, I could have them try to think about maybe two things at once or just give them a, rem a reminder of it. Or maybe I, I let them do it a couple more times and say, great. Now, um, now we've got it. Now we're, let's, let's go back to some things that we were working on yesterday. Let's focus on them for a little bit. And then maybe I come back and say, great, the things we're working on, the thing we're working, working on yesterday is really nice, but as we were doing it, we forgot about our, our runs. So let's, not, you know, in other words, I'm kind of doing retrieval practice of like alternating between those two things. I think over time, like if I'm like, let's say yesterday was like defensive body position and today is, you know, the two runs. If I go run two <laughs> two pieces of feedback about the run, one about defensive body position, one about the run, one about defensive body position. Ultimately, they're going to converge. I think that players, if I focus on them for a significant duration of time, players will be able to do both. Of the, my hope would be that players would be able to begin to execute both at the same time. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good and that's helpful. Um, my, my second question with feedback is... And, and I find myself doing this a lot in my coaching. Yeah. Um, you know, we said we wanted to see this thing and then I'm giving, I'm giving feedback on things that I didn't talk about, yeah. um, which I, which I know I want to eliminate. My, my question though is when I, when we've told, I've told an athlete, I want to see something from them. And then a pre-agreed, um, 
maybe like expectation or level of effort or behavior isn't yeah. happening, like what should be corrected? And is that, is that a result of they're using so much of their working memory on learning this new skill Indeed. that, that yeah. they're struggling to maximize effort? And do I just need to let them slow down and learn it until it's automatic? Or is it a place yeah. to bring the correction in about the behavior? The short answer is I don't know, but the long answer is I think that's like, it's just a very, very insightful question that every coach would have to ask themselves. Is the failure that I'm seeing in part because I'm, it's the result of the learning process, which is my players are focused so much right now on closing the defensive shape that they're not attending to where they're supposed to be defensively. And so this, I would call this like an implementation dip or are the fundamental tenets of our team agreement, which is like, we will work hard, we will hustle, we will, you know, we will, we will sacrifice for that, you know, are those things fraying? Am I not, you know, is, is the, is, is the culture of expectation and just like ground rules fraying and I'm not realizing it, not reinforcing it. And those are very, two very different things and they're both equally important. And I think that's, you know, the why coaching is such incredibly challenging work because you have to, the symptoms can look really similar between two very different causes and it's important to get it right. But I think that another thing that's implicit in your question is there are certain cultural elements of how we approach the game that are always on, right? When we're in practice, we always play hard. We always compete. We always give our best. We always support our teammates, whatever those things are. Um, those have to be always on. And so it can allow like maybe for a short dip if people are really, really focused on learning something. But for the most part, I would want to, I would probably want to remind and say just a minute, and we're working hard on our, on our making our runs here. And I think we're making progress, but I think we've lost sight of like who we are as a team. We're not hustling the way that the, you know, that the Huskies hustle. And so like, come back to the runs in a second. I just want you to focus on playing the way we play for the next five minutes. Go right now, come back right now. We've got, now we've got it back and feel that felt like that felt like who we were, who we are the hustle. Now I want to see if we can bring that back to like, I guess I think what I'm describing here is like resimplifying, right? We're struggling to play the way we want to play and incorporate the new idea. Let's simplify a little bit. Let's go back to playing the way we want to play. And then we'll try to bring the, you know, remind ourselves how it is we want to play, make the memory fresh. And then let's, and incorporate this new idea again and incorporate it right so we're practicing doing it the way that we should do it i like that that's really good and this kind of feeds into to one of my next questions about culture and the importance of language i think yeah. most coaches can embrace um that language is important to their culture but I, but i'd love to know like what have you found as far as the, the inverse of that, when language isn't clear in a culture, what happens for athletes, maybe on a psychosocial and also on a learning level? Yeah. I think it's like one of the most overlooked things in sport. You know, you use a term, like what's a, give me a basketball term that would be like a fairly technical term that you know, would be important for you to know as a 15 year old basketball player. Oh, the, um, the helpline. Yeah. So let's say like a coach uses that term 
the presum and his presumption is that you know his players know what that mean means. Let's say that like half of the players actually know what that means, and like and their their understanding of it is you know is often vague. Some of them think they understand, but they don't actually understand, or they have a very vague conception, but it's very specific, or it means something different to him than it does to them. And half of them don't know because it's never been intentionally installed over a kid's life, right? So, uh, and so we're talking about these ideas that people simply don't understand. And the results are kids don't know what to do. And often, you know, like at a large scale level, which is everyone is sort of pretending that they understand the concept that no one really does. And so if I'm a kid and I'm watching it intentionally, I'm like, so this is helpline? Like, <laughs> like it, it only confuses the concept. So, I, I, you know, I just, I think that like intentionality to understanding the words as a group, all of us, if I'm going to use that word, I need to make sure that everyone understands it and understands it in the same way if I'm going to use it consistently. And I think that coaches presume that players have it much more understanding than they actually do. And then I think there's a difference between, this is like my big takeaway from the Jesse Marsh interview in chapter five, which is there's a difference between vocabulary and our vocabulary, which is I realized, I realized something about myself in writing this book, which is like Teach Like a Champion is a book that is obsessed about like vocabulary. And every time there was a word for something in education that was sort of like what I was describing in Teach Like a Champion, I chose to use my own word for it because that allowed me to control the definition. And so when someone talked about scaffolding, which like 16 million people use in education, it means 16 million different things to different people and they can like, then the, the definition of it can drift and someone else can define it differently. You don't specifically control what that word means to everyone on this field. And that to me is like dangerous. And so that's like what Jesse Marsh was basically doing was, you know, like every culture in the world is defined by like, you're French because you speak French. <laughs> like cultures are defined by language. He's building a culture starting around the word. These are, this is our word for this thing. And we define it differently. And even if someone else calls something very, has a very similar concept and calls it by, and has a name for it, I want to call it something different here because I want to control and I want us to control what the definition of it is. So we always mean the same thing when we're talking about it. And we have cultural experiences around it and it reaffirms our shared understanding of it. So I, I mean, it, go back to your question. I just, I just think vocabulary is the most profound form of background knowledge and background knowledge is routinely overlooked. I think by be another like epiphany from the book is how important we live in the age when people will tell you that, you know, knowledge and facts are irrelevant because you can look anything up on Google. And, and, and they say that at exactly the time when background knowledge is most important because it's the, it's the single most important thing for high, you know, to, inf to inform and accelerate higher order thinking. Yeah. Mm, that's really good. Um, still talking is about, that, but is that background noise distracting by the way? Uh, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I share my office with my wife's pet rabbit now. <laughs> <laughs> you just woke up. That's fantastic. You're getting all the craziness of pandemic here. I You're good. Up. It's hey, it's real life, man. Everyone's going through it. Um, okay, uh, culture and a, a culture of error. What what have you seen or studied that are? 
the typical behaviors that coaches engage in that prevent players from feeling safe to make mistakes. And on the other side of that, what are the new behaviors that coaches have to embrace to create a culture of error where mistakes are learning opportunities? Yeah. I think, I think two things are, I think the first thing is emotional constancy. Coaches confuse emotional intensity with practice intensity. And so they think I will be an intense and a coach of intensity and high expectation. If I yell at kids, player makes a mistake in practice. God, gosh, damn, whatever they, Luke, you know, you screw, you know, you screw, you gotta be, you're out of, you know, go sit down or, you know, like I, there's a coach here who notoriously, um, <laughs> this isn't an exaggeration, but like was like through a cone, you know, like a pile of cone onto the field and was like, that cone could do a better job than you right now, Travis, you know, whatever, like getting, so getting furious at a kid for a mistake, just compare that to like, I'm really glad I saw that mistake because we can't make that mistake on Saturday. So I'm glad that we know about it now. And I want to talk about why it's happening so we can fix it together. Right, that is not soft on mistakes. That doesn't make it okay to make a mistake. It makes it okay to reveal a mistake and to learn and practice because it's really important for Saturday, right? I'm so glad I know, I'm, I'm so glad that we're struggling to, that I see us struggling to coordinate our press right now because it's gonna have to be rock solid on Saturday. So let's study what's happening here and go. And so the second part, so the first part is emotional constancy and saying like, I, I, I'm, it is acceptable for you to make errors in practice and I'm not mad at you. And then the second thing is like studying them and teaching them, using them as like validating them as a learning opportunity, right? So let's look at how we're positioned now and why we're positioned that way and how it has to be different, right? And that says not only that it's okay to have this happen, but we're going to use this as a, if you, if you are, if we're non-defensive about this and you expose your errors to me and if we, and you even say, coach, I'm not clear on what I'm supposed to be doing here. Or when I say, you know, you don't try to pretend that you were somewhere other than you were. And we, we will actually learn a lot from that conversation and it will make us better. And the study of my failures is going to be the, one of the key drivers of my success for the long term. So I think it requires emotional constancy and the willingness to, to validate the value of errors and part of the learning process by actually studying them in front of, in front of players so like, this is really silly, but like being able to blow your whistle and having everyone pause exactly where they are allows you to recreate the scene and study the scene and say, great, what's wrong with this picture? What do we need to know to be able to do this better while we're all looking at it right now? Um, and so I think that's, you know, those are two of the really critical parts of culture of error. And John, I'm sure you, you know, John Wooden has this great phrase, which is coaching, <laughs> teaching is knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And if players are trying to hide what they don't know from you, that job just got 10 times harder. Um, and so we want them to be willing to share their mistakes. And then we have to show why, why mistakes are important as learning tools. Yeah, that's really good. That's powerful. I love that phrase. I'm glad you made this mistake so that it doesn't happen on game day. That's, that's powerful. Um, yeah. Or, or, and I think there's so many, like, I think coaches assume that like, there's so many good reasons why kids make the mistakes that they do. Right. I'm glad you want to protect the basket, right? As opposed to, God damn it, you're not supposed to be, you know, in the, I'm glad you want to protect the basket. You should be thinking that way. But in this, in this situation, there's a different decision that we need to make, which is like, like, okay, 
the reason why you made that mistake is valid and I appreciate it and it shows you're thinking about the game. There's a different decision we need to make. In this case, it's very different from saying, you know, from um, attributing it to some, some psychological failure of motivation or character. Yeah, that's really good. All right, I got two, two final questions for you. The first one is, uh, if you were coaching a 12-year-old soccer team, mm-hmm. um, what would your focus be on as a coach, and what would I see if I came and watched a practice with your team? Mm, you'd, probably, you'd probably see a disaster. <laughs> um, I think my focus would be on first touch, which is like maybe this is distinctive to soccer. But I think this is one of these hidden hidden drivers of uh, of success in the game, right? Your first touch is, you know, like you can't, in basketball, you can grab the ball. And so like how you receive the ball is not, you never fully control the ball in soccer. So how you receive it is really important. And it's actually this, the thing that you do most in soccer, right? If you have five touches on the ball, it always starts with the first touch, usually under pressure with someone attacking you. So if you can like redirect that ball or, um, uh, misdirect someone even a very small thing like like the ball should always be moving if you're a defender at least you always want the ball to be moving after your first touch because that preserve you know you then you have two options right you can continue this way you can go back that way it leaves you less vulnerable to a pressing forward so i feel like this is like just a very like it's a simple non-sexy skill that's critically important i think I, i'd focus on that with the ball but I, maybe as i'm talking about this i'm actually realizing that like it's actually play off the ball that's hugely important and overlooked, right? People focus all the time on what you do with the ball, but how you move when you're away from the ball, it's like, that's a sign of a great athlete. And when I do that, and when I coach players to think about what they do away from the ball, I widen the range of decisions, of, of things that they're conscious of and the, and the number of times that they're making decisions. Cause you know, I think the long run key to success is is perception. It's like I see and I read the game as it happens around me. And so much of the time for young players, their perception is turned off, right? They don't have the ball. And so they're not actively watching the game and thinking about what angle, what shape should my body be right now? And what angle should it be? And where's the space that I'm trying to find? But if I start coaching players in a young, at a young age, instead of the coaching the player on the ball, so, so maybe not first touch, instead of coaching the player on the ball, if I coach the players off the ball, Right in basketball, there are four players without the ball and one player with the ball. In soccer, there are ten players without the ball and one player with the ball. I'm suddenly coaching them to think about making decisions and watching the game and learning from the game when they don't. To to make the idea that the decisions and the perceptions you have when you don't have the ball are are at least as important as when you do have the ball. And I just think that, like in the long run, that's going to accelerate their learning immensely. And I think that if you watch, even you know. American players at the elite level, you know, the intuitive perception of the, it's, it's easy to get to the skill level of the best players in the world. It is much harder to get to the perceptive level of the best players in the world. Um, so I think you would probably, I mean, hopefully you'd see a lot of, you know, I think one of the things you'd probably see me try to emphasize is playing is playing and perceiving movement away from the ball. That's, that's really good. And, and I love, I love the combination of those two things for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, that first touch, I, I played soccer through high school. It is such a 
foundational skill, like you said. Yeah. So it, it's, it's both a focus on like, here are skills that they're going to need to succeed later. And let's, let's really focus on the perception developing as well. Um, which like you said, that's the hardest part. And maybe one more thing I'd say about first touches, which like most of your decisions are made during your first touch. And so this is the most important thing to do, be able to do something sophisticated at no cost to working memory, because if you have to use your working memory, it will degrade your perception. So I think this is a classic example of like, if players aren't making good decisions, this is the thing I want to fix, which is there's a decent chance they're not making a good decision because at the moment they're receiving the ball, they're thinking about receiving the ball instead of looking to see where their opponents are. Uh, you know, like Johan Cruyff talked about this. It's <laughs> like, this is what he, this is what he, this is why he thought he, were, he, he said, you know, growing up as a youth soccer player, there are guys who are, much, who are much more skillful than me on the ball, but I could receive a ball under pressure in half the space, you know, a simple recurring aspects of soccer, I could do better than them in less space. And therefore I could be thinking about what I was going to do next with the ball. And that was sort of what he attributed, what he attributed. His yeah. Success. Yeah. I would, I like that. And, and I would add one, maybe like basketball specific example to yeah. that um, is I see so often with my ninth grade team, one of the skills and habits that we have been really intentional about trying to build for them is just the habit of when they catch the ball, we just call it peaking, like getting their eyes up to see the court yeah. because it, it, most players aren't in the habit of doing it. And so it is both this like skill, like you need to catch and get your eyes up that allows them to perceive so much um, that I think, yeah, the younger you can teach players to do those things that they're actually um, the things that determine success. Like a lot of coaches yeah. will identify a problem and it's really the symptom of a problem. Like you said, like they're actually the real problem is their first touch or their lack of vision yeah. or whatever it may be. Um, I think that's really beautifully put. And I, it made me like, um, scanning is all the rage in soccer right now, like training players to scan and like measuring how often they scan to like look before they receive um, the ball, which sounds a lot like peaking. And at first I was thinking like, Oh, there's no such thing as first touch in basketball. But I wonder if like, it, isn't the, is there a position called triple threat where you're supposed to like, when you catch the ball, you're supposed to hold it in a specific position to maintain optionality or am I like, am, yes, I'm no, actually. you're totally right. It's kind of an old school that you would have it kind yeah. of right off of your hip. The thought is yeah. that you could dribble pass or shoot from this position. Um, yeah. It's not something that I would necessarily teach to players. Yeah. Because yeah. I was just I find myself thinking about like what you catch the ball, but then like even like your first move once you whether you like catch it and hold it or catch it and dribble, like what do you like? A lot of your perception is happening while you're making a series of decisions that are yeah. sort of comparable to your first touch. That like mm -hmm. I don't know how often that gets topped. I would say the comparable thing maybe from a soccer first touch to a basketball would be two things: one, your feet, your footwork. Mm -hmm. Um, how yeah. you receive the ball, where your feet are positioned, and then two, your vision. So where your eyes yeah. go when you catch it. Um, yeah, that, that's really good. That's, that's so interesting. I think foot position too. Like I suspect that a lot of coaches would overlook that. I think it was like too mundane to teach, but I bet it's like super important. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, all right, my last question for you is um, if you could decide um, the three or four things that – every coach, every sport at every level, mm. they need to be educated on these things or know how to do these things in their coaching. What would they be? Number one, positive framing, how to give constructive feedback in a way that motivates athletes and does not require you to give five pieces of positive feedback to be able to tell someone how to do it better. <laughs> Just to say like, 
look, you're, you know, all the things in the book about like, I just think positive framing is so foundational to like expressing your faith in players while you're making them better. I'm assuming that this is like, this is like for like wide number of coaches. Yeah. Yeah. I think number two is just the idea of like, of, of tracking data while you're observing. But there's no such thing as taking mental notes while players. There's just too much complexity. And, and it's actually really important to write down what you see players doing because if you don't write it down, you will not observe correctly and you won't know whether players actually learned what you asked them to do or did what you asked them to. I just think that like from everything I know about practice, that is chronic. Coaches ask or tell players to do something. Players simply don't do it right in front of their eyes and the coach never notices. <laughs> and and uh, so that, I'd say that's probably two. Um, I think, I think a lot of the, like, I think three would probably be the importance of aligned feedback, which is the idea that like, I make a stoppage, I tell you something is important to me afterwards as I'm, I should be narrating back to you whether you're doing it, whether you're doing it well and telling you that once I tell you to do something, it's important to me too. And I continue to notice it because I just think that validates the whole idea of feedback. And if I, if I, my implicit message is I tell you to do something and 10 seconds later, I've forgotten it. Like, why should you listen? So I think that's pretty, that's pretty fundamental. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and maybe it, that's, maybe that's, a, maybe that's enough. I might, yeah. I might throw in like, I might just throw in the importance of long-term memory. There is, you know. Yeah. Understanding that. I, I think that's, I, I would, I would add that too. You know, I think even as a, a classroom teacher, I like, I, I forget about the importance of that. And I forget about the importance of, recall and retrieval and background yeah. knowledge and it's that, easy to that Harry Fletcher would quote you know like the difference between performance and learning at the end of practice when you see guys doing something you assume that that's learning and it's actually performance and it's a false signal I think that's something that every coach should know coaches thanks for listening to this episode and a huge thanks to Doug Lamar for coming on the podcast and sharing his knowledge and wisdom. If you enjoyed this conversation with Doug, go grab a copy of The Coach's Guide to Teaching from his publisher, John Cat Educational, and use our exclusive discount code, TRANSFORM20, at checkout for 20% off your copy. Click the link in the show notes and use our promo code, TRANSFORM20, to get your copy of The Coach's Guide to Teaching. Also, I enjoyed the book so much that I took 77 pages of notes on the book. That's not a lie, 77 pages. If you'd like a free PDF of my notes from the Coach's Guide to Teaching, go to transformsport.org slash CGT. That's transformsport.org slash CGT to get a free copy of notes about the Coach's Guide to Teaching, or just click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Coaches Club podcast wherever you listen. And give us a shout out on Twitter at Coaches Club underscore. That's C O A C H E S Club underscore. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.